All right, welcome back everybody to our third episode of Coffee Hour Chat. This is Reverend Andrew Conley Holcomb from Admiral Congregational Church with Reverend Elisa Wool from Wayside UCC in Federal Way. And we are so pumped uh, to have you back with us in quarantine mode. Self-isolation, <laughs> social distancing, uh, which we are social distancing, recording this via Zoom. So if the sound is a little different, that is why. Yep. Uh, we're excited to talk to you guys today. Uh, we're going to continue the kind of stream of the episode that we had set up to do from last time. So this time we'll be talking about what defines us, what defines the church, what defines Christians uh, in a welcoming environment. Kind of this idea of we say everyone is welcome, but the reality is it's not all behaviors are welcome. And so how do we define those behaviors? How do we and where do we draw the line to continue to welcome the most people we can? And any of you that have been in United Church of Christ congregations know this tagline, no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. One of the problems of that tagline, as we've encountered as pastors, but even lay people will talk about, is that that tagline can often be used as a bludgeon uh, whenever you try to set a boundary. If you try to set a boundary about some behaviors or about how people are showing up or what's going on or when people start breaching rules or not taking responsibility, they say, hey, wait a minute, I thought this was a welcoming environment. I saw on your billboard, no matter who you are, and it doesn't feel <laughs> like that anymore. And so, think, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think even like, I don't even think this is necessarily a progressive issue. I think this is just like a church issue in the sense that I find people come into the church with this idea, especially towards pastors, that like, you have to welcome me, like you have to love me. Therefore, I can do and say and be however I want to be and say whatever I want to say and act in ways that I would never act in other contexts in my life. Like, I find sometimes you get some of the, like, worst behavior in churches than anywhere else because of that idea of, like, well, you have to welcome me because doesn't God love everybody? Right, and, and aren't you God? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, that's the assumption. Yeah. Well, there's an interesting parallel, though. though um, I read this article about this kindergarten teacher that was quitting teaching kindergarten, and she was giving her reasons why. And she said, you know, a lot of people say that like, oh, the kids have gotten worse, blah, blah, blah. But she gave this really in insightful comment. She said, the kids haven't gotten worse. The fact of the matter is kids aren't as safe at home. And so they act out in the places where they're the most safe. Mm -hmm. So the kids that are safe to act out at home, act out at home and they're little terrors to their parents, but they aren't that way in school. When it's not safe to act out at home, you act out at school. And so I think a lot of people show up to church and they say, this place is supposed to be safe. Therefore, all of my trauma, all my pain, all my yes. suffering, yes. this is the only place that it's welcome. So people will be horrible to us. And we have to remember that it has absolutely nothing to do with us. And it, what it is, is actually, weirdly, it's a sign of respect for the church that their assumption is that this is a place that I'm going to be safe. Now, of course, that feels like total garbage, but I think there's some truth inside of it. Yeah, it feels like total garbage when you're on the other end of the bad behavior. But, yes. but it, there is when you have that understanding, hopefully you have that understanding as a pastor that like, this is not personal. Um, this is somebody working through their hurt, their pain, their trauma. 
but the issue is, is that we don't, we in the church, and I think we as individuals don't necessarily have or ever learn the skills of how to work through those things and how to, in a healthy manner, deal with one's trauma and baggage and healing. And I think one of my passions is that I truly believe the church should be the place that is, is really setting the bar for good boundaries and for good self-management, I guess you could say, like good uh, emotional literacy. Yeah. Um, Well, if we're going to be the safe place where people can come with their stuff, then we have to be a place of boundaries. Yes. Right? Like if we're really going to be the place where people learn how to process their trauma in healthy ways and how to not end up in codependent relationships and not end up in these uh, trying to earn our worthiness or our value, then we have to have boundaries because that's the only way that we're going to keep clear the space we're trying to work in. And so it's funny, like we need to be the open place that accepts everybody so that they can bring all their stuff. But then if we want them to actually deal with their stuff, we have to be a place that sets some pretty rigid guidelines for how you're going to be in that space. So it's safe enough to process your stuff. And so it's kind of this, it's this weird ping pong feeling like, come on in, you're welcome, no matter how wounded or broken you are. And if you if you don't want to stay that way, we've got some expectations about how we're going to do this thing because there's other broken and wounded people here and they're likely to get hurt by all the sharp edges you're bringing in. Well, and that's the thing is, is if you don't want to stay this way is the church is meant to be a place of transformation. So I think some people who coming into the church are like, this is the first experience I'm having with a safe place. And they don't get beyond the safe place. They they don't move into the transformation of the safe place. Um, That this is now a place where you can really work with all of your experiences and who you are. And as you were talking, I got this silly visual of like the Holy Spirit, like closet organizing (laughs) section of the church (laughs) of like, you know, like come in, bring your baggage. (laughs) Now put your like early childhood trauma baggage in the orange buckets with your like (laughs) college mistakes, you know, in the, uh, over here in the blue, uh, organizer and your, uh, adult like shoulda woulda coulda didn't and you know over here in the red uh filing system like (laughs) right and your betrayal bucket down on the corner we're gonna just fill that right up and then we'll dig through it later we're gonna color code it sort it and figure it out (laughs) (laughs) so when you think of boundaries how do you how would you define like what is a boundary good question good question Um, I think they're role specific and I think they're contextual. So I think um, when I think about boundaries um, with congregants, for example, um, my relationship as a pastor to my congregants is I need to be able to be their pastor all the time. Now, that doesn't mean that I am like at their beck and call all the time, but it means that if something happens in their life, they need to know that Pastor Andrew is there. Not just like Andrew, their buddy, who happens to have interesting thoughts, but like when their kid commits suicide, right? When their brother comes out as being deeply addicted, um, when their grandkid comes out as gender non-binary and they don't know what the hell to do with that, they need to know that I'm going to be their pastor and that I'm going to show up for them and they're not going to need to take care of me. 
Um, and so I feel like in order for that to be true, it has to be always true. And so I feel like as a pastor, I have to set boundaries about how I show up in my congregation so that not only um, people know that I'm like open and available and accessible to them, but that they also know that like, I'm going to maintain that role of pastor with them. Um, and some people really push back on this a lot. They want to be like your friend. They want to feel yeah. like, Hey, we're just buddies. You know, like you don't have any authority and it's not about authority. I think there's this misunderstanding. It's about role clarity. Um, well, that, yeah, that's what I'm wondering as you're talking, like, are you like, it sounds more of like defining expectations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think boundaries are a lot about expectations actually. Yeah. And I think that's a great way to kind of look at boundaries because I, so I was telling you, I did a little research before <laughs> the reason I did a little research is because, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the book boundaries and it has the iconic front, um, uh, front of the book. What do you call that? The cover, cover. Oh <laughs> of a pencil with a line drawn down the middle. And it is, um, a conservative evangelical bestseller of like hmm. how to set boundaries um, using like scripture and God. And so I read this book like wow. back in, gosh, high school and maybe again in college. And there's like 10 different versions of this thing. And so I went, I went back because I was like, okay, I can't remember if this is like really bad and is like telling people like really awful things that they're all now going to be like so screwed up about boundaries or like, was it helpful? Cause I remember feeling it was helpful when I read it or like, is it some in between? So I went back and like skimmed through the whole book. I refused to purchase it, but <laughs> I, I found, I found a, um, like pirated copy. online. <laughs> um, um, ethics are different from boundaries. Let's ethics just name that. And boundaries, different. <laughs> but like, this is like the only, one of the only tools that I've found that is really addressing this idea of like boundaries within the church. I think there are a lot of tools that pastors have access to, but not necessarily churches. Um, but the way that was like, what was my point? The way they defined boundaries was not via like expectations, but they defined it from a very like property ownership standpoint. And like oh. the imagery that kept coming up over and over and over again is boundaries are like owning property and where your fence ends is where your boundary is drawn. And so distinguishing between that like possessiveness of like what is mine and what is not mine. And so the whole dynamic of boundaries within this book is this understanding of what you are responsible for and what you are not responsible for. Um, and there I'm was hip a, to there, that. Yeah, I'm hip to that. But like the control part of that, like responsibility and control, I feel like are very different things. And that whole fence garbage feels like a control metaphor, and that makes me very uncomfortable. Because it's like, wait a minute, I have to control other people, and I have to control their act. Like I have to manage too many people if that's my metaphor for boundaries. I mean, granted, it was more about like controlling yourself and fighting and taking okay. responsibility for yourself. Like that part was good, but there was some like very problematic stuff within it about like um, you who have done a lot of work with domestic violence, you would have torn your hair out. There was like a whole part of it that was like, 
if your husband, of course, you know, um, is, is abusive, then you should just, um, like ignore them emotionally until they finally like see the error of their ways and change. And then you come back to them. But the whole, like, it went into more nuance than that, but the whole concept was like, you have to stay within the abusive um, relationship until like waiting for the hopes that like your, your abusive partner will like come to Jesus. And then you can just like reconcile with them. It's not like, get the fuck, excuse me, get, get out. <laughs> like get out. <laughs> it was just like, that was just not even an option. Um, and it's super homophobic. But, um, well, I just thought that was interesting that, that idea of property. Well, because you brought it up, I, I would be remiss if I didn't comment on, um, uh, if you're counseling someone who's in a DV situation, uh, your best bet is to not give them a lot of advice. Um, especially don't tell them to leave. I just want to say this out loud because, um, leaving is the most dangerous thing you can do as a, survivor in a DV sitting setting. That's when you're most likely to get murdered. Um, so like it usually takes somebody seven to nine attempts to actually leave a DV yeah. relationship. Um, however, like one of the things that um, Marie Fortune from Faith Trust Institute talks about when she talks about domestic violence is she talks about covenantal relationships. And this relates back to boundaries. She basically says when a, a relationship is violent or abusive, the covenant is already broken. And so you don't need to worry about honoring the marriage because the abusive partner has already destroyed the covenant between the two of you. So that shouldn't be the thing that's holding you there, right? And so we talk about safety planning and like setting appropriate boundaries for your own safety when somebody's in an abusive relationship. We don't talk about like honoring the covenant of the marriage because I think, I think Dr. Fortune is absolutely accurate. The covenant of the marriage has been broken if it yeah. got to this point where this violence is happening. And so then the question is how, how do you help the person set appropriate boundaries for themselves about how they're going to keep themselves safe, how they're going to keep their kids safe, how they're going to have some financial independence, some security, that kind of thing, if they can't leave the relationship in the moment. Yeah. I'm glad you cleared that up. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you would have torn your hair out. But I, but I think like going back to the idea of establishing healthy boundaries within the church is that understanding that it is not a possessive mechanism, that it's not what is mine and what is not mine. Because I hear that so much in the church of like, well, it's not my problem or I, it, I, I don't do that. Or, you know, that's not how we do things, you know, mm -hmm. um, that this ownership that makes one, feel as if the church is something they own instead of something that they're a part of, that they are a part of um, a community more right. so than um, a property owner. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and at the same time, like, I mean, I think, so there's a metaphor about parenting that I think comes into play here too. Like these aren't our kids. These are God kids that God has put on loan to us. And I think, the church should be thought of in that same way. Like the assets of the church, the church itself is not a thing that anyone should have authority over, in my opinion, including myself. I definitely should not have authority over my own church. Um, 
However, I should think of myself as a caretaker for that kind of center of gravity and that every member of the church is a caretaker for that center of gravity. And so we set boundaries so that people can enter in to a safer place than they were outside of the church. And I don't think that you can create safer places without boundaries, without some kind of parameters, expectations. And that's where the difference between like a covenant and a contract is important because a contract understanding of boundaries is where you say, all right, uh, I, these are the behaviors and we're watching anyone who violates these and then we'll call them to account, right? A contract is for mutual distrust. A covenant is where you say, this is who and how I'm going to be when I show up here. And I expect that everyone who shows up will show up in this way. And I'm going to hold myself accountable to this way of showing up. Um, and so it, it has this kind of, I'm going to be responsible for policing myself on how I show up on this place. But I do think eventually, if somebody is really violating the covenant, there does have to be some way to limit their access to that space so that they don't cause greater harm. And I think that's what we're talking about, about boundaries is can we collectively articulate how we're going to um, create some buffer for folks yeah. that aren't willing to covenant with us. I think like we could easily go down the rabbit holes of like extreme boundary violations. Sure. And sure. I, I honestly think that like that conversation is not necessarily helpful. We should do a whole episode on a safe church. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yeah, safe church policies. That's, that's kind of more that avenue. But I think like what I'm finding is like basic stuff, like basic 101, like how you talk to people how you communicate with like one another. Um, you know, I often start my boundary awareness kind of training with um, churches that I've been a part of um, at communication. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it, and even from the point of like, like how do we literally communicate? How do I get in contact with you? <laughs> Cause you know, there's the, the whole like mystical church way of contact where everyone finally gets the information. Um, even though you like put it in the bulletin and, put it in a newsletter and put it on four different social media sites and told them in person, but they still have no idea that that happened. Um, but being able to teach people like, okay, how do you, how is it best for you to communicate with each other? How do we get information to each other? But also when we get information to each other, how do we listen to each other? Um, how do we make space where we're not, you know, filling in the blanks for other people and letting them sort of, say what they need to say and really take that in. Um, but also like common decency, like <laughs> would you, I always think like, would you talk to your mother that way? Um, <laughs> um, like really those basic things that like, I, I just, I come in, count, in contact with so much in church where I'm like, you would never talk to, you know, your boss the way that you are talking to me right now. Um, well, it sounds like what you're talking about is about kind of educating people about some basic communication strategies. Like, you know, God, if everybody knew just a little bit more about nonviolent communication, yeah. like if everybody just understood what the meaning of an I statement is and what feeling words actually are, like, I feel judged is not a feeling. That is not a feeling. That is an accusation. If people just understood a little bit more of those two things, I think there would be so much about communication that would be so much 
it'd just be so much more productive because there would be so much less defensiveness and reactiveness and combativeness that would just show up because people aren't careful with how they talk to each other. Yeah. It gives me the image too of like, we think of boundaries as being outside of ourselves as like drawing the line. But the reality is, is good boundaries is about having a better awareness of yourself, of looking within. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's that I statement of like being able to articulate your opinion, your feeling, you know, how this is, how whatever's going on affects you, but also how you're affecting other people. And like, I think about like uh, what we're going through right now with like the COVID-19 stuff of like that, when people don't understand kind of how their actions affect others, whether intent, like intending to or not, then we have these incidents of people who are putting, you know, other people in harm's ways, regardless of whether, you know, you're going to get sick or not. But it's like, it's not about you. But at the same time, that boundary is about you because it's, it's, you know, keeping yourself safe in order to keep other people safe so that you can then be in community with others. And I think the being in community part is the piece that has to be a stated value that undergirds the boundaries. Like I was thinking about this in terms of COVID-19 about people that hoard supplies, you know, like the folks that go out there and buy like 500 rolls of toilet paper. Yeah. Um, There's, there's an interesting subconscious like statement that's being made, which is, no one's going to take care of me. I have to take care of myself. Yes. But, but there's a funny manifestation of that, which is if anybody finds out that I've done this, they'll be mad. So I can't take care of anyone else because they'll know that I've been hoarding all of this toilet paper. They'll know that I've been controlling all these assets and that they, I'm the reason they can't get it anymore. And so it just is like this funny self-fulfilling prophecy that if you don't see yourself as part of community, then you won't be part of community and you won't, it'll be harder for you to be part of community later when you need it. There's that dynamic too. I think of those who like try to profit off of trauma. So like those also hoarding toilet paper and hoarding hand sanitizer um, and then trying to sell it and to like um, up price it and sell it so that they can make more money off of it. Like I feel like, in a way though, is another breakdown of community because it's like, I must make myself, put myself at a better advantage because if I recognize the weight of this situation, I recognize that my community is broken right now. And so if I can like sort of put myself on top of the situation where I'm not quote unquote in the situation, I'm profiting off of the situation, which takes you outside of it in a way, um, then it's, it's just about me, myself, and I. It's not about community at all. Right. You don't even have to care about community as long as the, you know, you've got customers. <laughs> right. Because you don't care about those customers. You're just trying to make yourself better in the long run, which in fact will make things, I think, worse for you. Right. And I think ultimately this conversation connects with another conversation about what, what is real security? Yeah. You know, I think um, this was all manifesting these assumptions that uh, we have learned as Americans from the culture that security is your control and what you can control as opposed to um, societies that understand our securities and our relationships. And the more connected we are and the more we trust each other, the more secure we will be, even if we don't have very much 
in terms of materials. And of course, this is what Jesus teaches all the time, right? What's the miracle of the loaves and fishes? The bunch of strangers shared their food with each other. Yeah. That he was able to inspire them to be generous. And it was led by this little boy offering this abundance that he had, trusting that it would be enough. You know, I think that those displays, those, uh, what, uh, in, uh, 12-step work we call um, emotional leadership. You know, when you're the one that's gonna show up first and be the way um, that you want other people to be, then it's safer for them to be that way. And I think that works with boundaries too, right? When we're people that are willing to say, uh, that's too much for me, I can't take that on right now, can somebody else help out? Like when we set a boundary for ourselves as pastors, as leaders, it makes it easier for other people to set boundaries and know that that's not like, them rejecting the community, but them saying, I can only do this much well. You just, oh, you just gave me such like a, like chill, chills bumps thought of like good boundaries opens up the possibility for community. Like, yes. you know, it's a good boundary when it is saying yes to community. And sometimes that is you saying, no, I cannot do this because your no then leaves room for someone else's yes but it has to leave room for someone else's yes, because I've seen it too, where people are, are just like so burnt out. Like a church is so burnt out that everyone's just like, no, no, no. But then they have all these ideas and all these wants and these needs and these expectations, but they don't have the community to fulfill those expectations. So they're in fact like setting bad boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, and so it needs to be a way to say no, or it's like, I might not be able to do this one thing, but it also is, getting creative to be able to say like, okay, well, what can you do? How can you participate? Because when we say no as pastors to things, when we get good at that, which none of us are, like True. it's supposed to help us have a better yes to other things. We can focus on and spend more of our time on other things um, because we're not engaging in whatever we have said no with. But it really, I feel like does come down to community. It's not about self-isolation. It's not about this drawing the line. It's about being a, aware of oneself and oneself's position to another. Mm -hmm. And this circles back around to the conversation about control as well, because I think a lot of that, the example you were giving about the church that's really burned out and says no all the time, they're not saying it's not the individual saying, I don't have the capacity for that. It's them saying the church doesn't have the capacity for that, which is really them saying, you can't, if you give your gift, you'll give it in a way that I don't like. And I'd rather you didn't give it um, than, than me trying, you know, like it's kind of that, like uh, we do it this way, but it's really the way that I see it. And so if you want to join, you have to do it the way that I do it. I don't actually want to give up control and let you do it the way that you're going to do it. So it's going to be a hard no, not a, I can't be part of that committee. And that's, I got, I've seen that so many times where it's like, Hey, somebody comes with a great idea. And then the people that are the kind of subtle, you know, the, uh, the invisible power players are like, I can't make it to that meeting. So we can't do that. And it's yeah. like, what? <laughs> I'm sorry. Do you have to be part of everything? And it's like, oh, you do have to be part of everything. Okay, well, that needs to change. Which is going to be so interesting with like everything we're going through right now, how it's completely disrupted, like the way that church is done. Um, it like literally, I feel like it's turned it on its head. And I'm sort of excited to see what it's going to look like when we come out of this because you can't 
go back to just like the old methods and ways of doing things. Like you, you like, it's sort of, gosh, my brain is like not working. It's full of too much pandemic anxiety. (laughs) I would not, I would not suggest that people cannot slip back into well-worn ruts. <laughs> I, I think there is a real possibility. I think that's what's what's exciting about this time for me is that we could set we could set some new patterns. But I think we as leaders, and I think lay people that are really invested in their churches, really have to invest in setting new patterns. Because if we don't, we'll just do this like band aid work for however many months this is going to last, and then we will slip back into those, those old ways of doing it if we think about this as being an interruption rather than this being an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, we're not on a pause button right now. We're on uh-huh. uh we're on play. Like we're we're going forward from this. We're not we're not going back. Right. Right. And I am not rewinding. <laughs> <laughs> I think the church has so much that it can learn from this right now. You know like and boundaries is a good point like when we can't serve. So I've been having this conversation in my congregation a lot about like one of the real gifts that a local neighborhood church gives is the gift of service to the community. You know, and, and Admiral hosts a number of 12-step groups, that hosts a preschool, hosts, hosts all these community organizing groups that really aren't meeting right now. And so one of our big gifts of service that we use our building for, we can't give. And so we're really having to have this conversation about what does it mean for us to be of service um, when we have to set these boundaries about like not having people in the building and not gathering as a group. And um, I think it, I don't know, it's just really, I feel like it could be really fruitful for us to think about and then define our service in really different ways. Yeah, I've also seen um, with Wayside, the the relationship connectedness grow um, in the sense that, I mean, I was um, away for a little bit and then I got this kidney stone. So I was knocked out for another week with the kidney stone and to watch my council step up and be like, we are going to take care of each other. And like, pastor, we're, we're really ready and excited for you. And you can, when you feel better and you can come back, but like, we got this. And they put together this whole spreadsheet where like every council member reached is reached out at least once to one of the church members in the directory and is ask them also specific questions of like, how are you doing? Do you need help? Um, do you want to volunteer for help? Do you want the pastor to call you? Do you want us to check in? Um, and then created this spreadsheet. So when I came, finally got to come back to work and I'm like looking at the spreadsheet, I was like, they have been lovingly taking care of each other. Like I'm not here now having to be like, okay guys, like we got to call people and we got to, you know, set up a system. And like, like they were like, we got this. And I've, even heard from like those conversations and some of the conversations that I've had of people calling in and checking in with each other um, that have never done that before and making connections mm-hmm. and being aware of people on a much deeper level and people's needs on a much deeper level. Um, and like, that's the stuff you hope for as a pastor is like, I feel like I'm constantly like, just love each other. Like, <laughs> just get to know each other. Like you have more in common than you think, like <laughs> care about each other. <laughs> sure. Sure. Well, and it's so, but it's so risky to do that. Yeah. You know, I mean, why do people not do it? It's not that they don't have the capacity or the, even the skills. I think a lot of people do have the skills 
you know what's you know what's been an interesting thing about COVID nineteen is um, how much easier it is to like cold call somebody you haven't talked to for a long time. Yeah. You know, like you have something, some immediate experience that you're sharing that you can talk about. Um, even if your experience is completely different, there's this like collective event thing that's happening. And um, I think that is actually a real gift to building community. Like why does going to a movie together matter? Like when you're, you know, like hanging out, eight friends go to a movie. Well, it's because you're having a collective experience that you can then reflect on together later. And so COVID-19 is this global collective experience. And so it gives us the kind of opening to start a conversation with somebody. And I think if we are intentional about that, if we, if we recognize that and use it, it can be a way to build that sense of community. I also think like I've heard, especially when I did youth work, I've heard so much criticism of like, you know, technology is isolating mm -hmm. people and it's taking us away from each other, which I think is true in some regards. Like I do think there has been a breakdown of community um, and a change in how community works due to um, technology. But I've also always been a cheerleader of technology of like, no, this is an incredible way that people can connect and can connect who, who, couldn't in other contexts and who can find community that they could never find community in physical context. Um, and to watch how people are finding creative ways to connect right now of mm -hmm. like, you cannot go out like, and kind of like absorb community by just like being in a crowded place. Like I know I'm, I'm an introvert at heart, even though everyone thinks I'm an extrovert, but like, I'm the person who like has to take a nap after like I've had done church on Sunday because I'm so <laughs> just burnt out of energy, like I'm out of energy because I just gave it all to the people who were there. But um, so I will sometimes like if I'm, you know, happen to be alone, which is very rare these days, um, we'll go to like the grocery store or go to like the mall or a coffee shop because I want to be around people. Um, and I want to, by being around people, I'm sort of like feeling like I'm in community. Um, but you can't do that. Right. So you can't go, you can't have that physical contact. But then also like if you're spending every day just like surfing Instagram, like that gets really boring after a while. Um, <laughs> and it's like that, you know, it may give you some laughs. It may give you some, you know, cries, whatever, but like, it's not going to talk back to you and it's not going to like engage with you. And so being able to, pick up the phone, you know, call your mom, call your grandma, like <laughs> call your friend, like, uh, send text message. My, it was my, one of my best friend's birthdays, um, the other day. And I just was like, okay, like, well, he lives in New York city, so I wouldn't be able to physically be in the same space as him anyways. But I'm like, I am going to send him ridiculous gifts, GIFs, um, all day long. Um, and so all day I just would send him, um, He's, he's a very fabulous, he'll, he'll let me say this about him, but he's a very fabulous gay man. And so I basically just sent him like magic mic gifts all day. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday to you. Um, but it's like, well, I've never done that before. Why, like, why haven't I thought of like picking a friend and being like, okay, I'm going to just like randomly text you all day, like funny pictures. So you never know when you're going to get them. Um, and they're just going to pop up. Um, and then like another example of like my family, my, I have two older sisters and my parents all got on a zoom chat together and there mm -hmm. was like my nieces and nephews in the background and it was utter chaos because my family, everybody talks at the same time, but 
I'm like, why have we never done this before? Sure, sure. Like, I know they live closer to each other so they can see each other more often, but like, why is it that us being in a pandemic is the first time that we've been like, oh, let's like all video chat and say hi, even if it only lasted for like 15, 20 minutes. So boundaries, I feel like in a lot of ways, like do really create opportunity for community when done Mm -hmm. well. Sure, sure. I was thinking about another thing that's been propping up uh, around the COVID-19 thing that's actually a bigger issue for churches as well. Um, So there's a a homeless woman who lives in her car that's connected to my congregation. And uh, the place that she was parking um, was a driveway of a relative and they didn't want her parking there anymore. So she called me up and said, hey, can, um, can can I park at the church? And I felt like I had the authority to say, Yes, no one's using that parking lot. You can definitely use that. But I was like, I'm going to wait before I give you any other access until I have a conversation with the leadership. And I did that for a couple of reasons. One was I actually don't have the authority to make those decisions. And I want to make sure that I, I retain not having that authority. I don't, I don't want my position as pastor to be controller of the resources of the church. But then also, I wanted to make sure that the leadership of the church was really thinking about what are the boundaries for service that we're going to set right now in these cataclysmic times, if you will, or these challenging times. Because it's one thing to say yes to some one person, right? And how many churches have poured a ton of resources into one needy person that shows up to the church, right? Have paid for their housing, paid for their meals, gotten them an apartment, like poured untold numbers of hours of support into one person and it burns out the church volunteers number one it uh it sets this crazy precedent number two that the second person comes around and says well i heard that this person not only got coffee cake on sunday but they got a ride and they got uh eventually somebody paid for uh, two months of their apartment um and this is a church that does that. And you know word gets around. And I, I feel like boundaries are important for setting expectations that we can maintain. If we don't set boundaries, right, because we're just so open-hearted and so like, oh, my God, I love you. You're a beloved child of God. I should give you my left arm. I've only got one left arm. I cannot consistently give my left arm. I could consistently give my sweatshirt if I own a lot of sweatshirts or I'm in the practice of buying sweatshirts regularly, I can give my sweatshirt every time, right? But like, it's about sustainability. And I think churches are often manipulated into being generous because that's what churches are supposed to be. Yeah. But churches need to be sustainable. And when we're manipulated into being generous in a way that's not sustainable, we're actually disrespecting the other people that are going to be in need because you know i just used this text uh in mark chapter 14 this woman anoints jesus and the disciples are like what the hell uh that that nard that was like worth like a year's wages we could have sold that and given it to the poor and jesus is like guys the poor will be with you always some people, dumb trite interpretations of that are like, the poor will be with you always, so who cares? There's always going to be poor people. <laughs> yeah. Right? But Jesus is actually quoting Deuteronomy 15, where Deuteronomy says, 
the poor will be with you always, and therefore you should always have your hand open. You should always be ready to care for the poor. Your systems, your structures, your churches, your synagogues, your organizations should be built to be sustainably able to give. And so I think boundaries are also ultimately, for churches at least, they're about sustainability. How can we continue to give this gift? So like, we can't just give exorbitant um, uh, resources in terms of salaries. We can't own property that we can't afford. We have to set boundaries around that stuff because otherwise we're going to burn out. We're going to spend our endowments down to nothing and then we're going to have to sell a church and die. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have a sort of a spill the tea in a way kind of in regards to what you're saying of when I was in um, Santa Barbara, we were on the main drag. So state street is kind of like main street for Santa Barbara. And we weren't in like the hub hub of it, but we were like, walkable distance from like where most people tourists go that we got a lot of um homeless and um vagrant traffic so uh vagrant being people just kind of like walking in and out of the the town traveler travelers um and so i always had this question of like how much can we give how much can we help um, because we just had this constant stream of folks coming in right. and, um, and it's so hard because it's hard acknowledging that you can't help everyone and yes. that even the help that you can give is probably not enough. Yeah. Um, and sort of sitting in a lot of ways with that guilt, but at the same time, recognize like recognizing that like we can only do so much so we had like a very particular plan laid out of like this is what we give this is what we do um and we would give like local grocery cards or gas cards um to people and then we'd give them a list of resources and we would help them if they needed to contact the other resources to to do that but otherwise it was like there's, we really can't do anything else like we're barely holding on <laughs> um, right. in this situation. Um, but it's so hard because you're like, wait, isn't this supposed to be the church? Like, aren't we supposed to be the ones who are like giving everything? But, but even when people think like use the example of the, um, the ax community of, you know, they, everyone gave up what they had, but they gave up what they had to enrich the community. Right. That it wasn't like, it wasn't a one-time donation. It right. was it was a building of an entire system of an entire new family group, and so it was a redistribution of resources that affected more than just a one person. It's not a capitalistic ideal, um, right. like that we think of charity. <clears throat> charity in this context is about completely changing the very system, um, uprooting so that it's it's we can we can really impact as many people as we can. Um, which, which is, yeah, we could get, we'll do a whole nother episode on <laughs> giving and charity and capitalism. And, capitalism and yeah. No, but I think you're right. Like that, even that kind of, that call to manipulate us um, and the quote, you know, uh, uh, from the story of the rich young man where he says, oh, you, you have to give up everything and then come and follow me. And he's like, uh, crap, I don't want to do that. And he walks away. That all gets manipulated too, because is Jesus really asking us to make a vow of poverty? 
No, I, I mean, obviously not, because he doesn't, he, he intentionally doesn't do that a ton of other places in the Gospels. So what is the ask? I think you're totally right. It's about, we're setting boundaries in order to make more community possible. Yeah. And so we can't, we can't overextend, because if we overextend, we make community less possible. Yeah. Um, but then at the same time, we need to make sure that whatever we're making is extended as far as it can extend sustainably and then we add more resources to it and then we renegotiate the way we're organized i think that's one of the big things is boundaries need to constantly be negotiable or like not not in the sense of like in the moment but like we need to always be ready to ask ourselves are these boundaries serving this particular organization at this particular time are these boundaries serving these relationships in this context at this time or do we need to rethink how we're giving, how we're including, how we're connecting our structure for decision-making, all of those things, who becomes a member and who doesn't, and what's the gatekeeping mechanism for becoming a member? You know, we talked yeah. about this at, at Admiral around, this might be my spill the tea moment. Um, so I was talking to this young couple about joining the church. And in our bylaws, it says pretty clearly that you need to be baptized in order to be a member of the church. and I was, I know that a number of people in my congregation definitely feel like that is an antiquated old school thing. Like being baptized is not very meaningful to many people in my congregation. Um, and so I'm, I'm sitting in this meeting with these young people talking to them about joining the church and I'm trying as hard as I can to tell them this information without telling them not to tell me if they're not baptized. So I'm like, I'm like explaining to them that it's in the bylaws and explaining to them to, that if I knew that they weren't baptized, then they would need to be baptized before they could join the church. And I'm very uncomfortable telling people they have to get baptized, which I am. I'm very uncomfortable saying you need to be baptized. That needs to be your decision. That needs to have nothing to do with me. But it is a gatekeeping mechanism in my congregation and our bylaws, which I'm, you know, I have mixed feelings about. Um, and so, so though it was a straight couple and the woman totally got it, was totally on top of it. And the guy was just looking at me like, I'm sorry, I do not understand what you're saying, <laughs> but both of us are baptized. And I was like, oh, thank God. And then I explained it to them. And then they were like, well, well, we're, we're kind of uncomfortable with the fact that that is a gatekeeping mechanism. And I was like, ah, crap, if I would have just, if I would have just not had this conversation, then I wouldn't have made them uncomfortable. So now as a church, we really do need to have a conversation about should we have a gatekeeping mechanism for membership yeah. or not? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think even thinking about what does membership mean in the congregational church, it means you get to decide how we spend our money. Right? Who's like ultimately- Who's in leadership. Yeah, who's in leadership which is really how to resources get allocated. What do we do? And yeah. then what's the budget? Um, yeah. And so, you know, should there be boundaries on who gets to decide where a Christian church spends its money? I think, yes, I think it should be, there should be a boundary and the boundary should be people that are committed to following Jesus to live out the will of God. Yeah. And people committed to this specific place too. Um, be, you know, this is where they want to, live out that call to follow God is in this specific place. Um, it was, I, I, I'm curious too, because like 
I keep coming back to that question of like, how do we define boundaries? And I'm, so we talked about like, okay, it's an expectation, but I also am seeing the word value come up too, that, mm-hmm. that boundaries are a way for us to signify like what is valuable. And I think about in terms of like when a boundary is crossed, um, that it is a way of saying like, you're not valuable, whether it's mm. the crossing, like it's really irregardless of who is being crossed or what is being crossed, but it, it really is, is in a way saying like, you're not valuable. Um, and I think about, the patriarchy. <laughs> That's <laughs> you know, a later simple, episode as well. Simple concept, the patriarchy. <laughs> but I think about just in the sim- most simplistic terms of like one gender over another saying, you're not as valuable as me. And right. so your worth and your, you know, needs um, don't matter to me in whatever level that is. Um, and so it is this like, in that opening of community, it is the acknowledgement too of like, what is valuable to us and what are we also saying is valuable in our community? Are we acting in such ways that we are in essence telling someone or doing something to someone or showing someone that they are not valuable? Right. Right. And how do we, how do we nuance that so that we don't, so that we don't only understand saying you're valuable to mean one thing that we have to do for everyone. Can we recognize the value and the belovedness of people in contextual ways? Cause like I think about it in terms of this membership thing or in terms of like the, the person who's experiencing homelessness that shows up today, you know, like if the only way we can show them that they're valuable is that we buy them a hotel room, then we have to figure out how to do that sustainably for every person that shows up to our church. If that's how we're going to communicate that you're of value. Yeah. And and like, we can't, we're not organized to do that, you know? And so that's not sustainable. And so then we will inevitably unintentionally tell someone they're not valuable because we won't be able to do that. Yeah. And, and in a lot of ways, like value is earned. Um, um, as well as value is given, something just doesn't like, you know, like, like if you say like a dollar, a dollar, like an actual paper dollar is not worth anything, actually. It's just paper. But we say that it is a dollar or we say that it's a hundred dollars. But in reality, it's just a piece of paper. Um, There's no actual value in the piece of paper, but it is because we have given it value that it becomes something of importance um, what is my point? <laughs> my point is, is that in thinking of boundaries as in terms of opening up communication is also thinking about it in terms of community negotiation, that mm-hmm. what my boundary is or what my val- what I put value on is not necessarily what someone else puts value on. And so in, when we think of boundaries as fixed, and when we think of boundaries too as possessive, as like, this is mine and no one else is in, screw you if you know you want me to change it, but that boundaries are always in negotiation and that right. we need to be in negotiation with one another of like, is this okay with you? It might be okay with me. Like I might be fine with you know this type of behavior, but it might be like not fine at all with someone else. And right. I mean, I just like, like I think about like, okay, my wife works in a jail, like the way that she interacts with her like employees and with the inmates, like 
I am not going to interact in that same way with, you know, my employees and (laughs) congregates. Like, um, if I were to to do, like, if I were to act in that sort of the way in that environment, which is a lot of swear words, (laughs) um, (laughs) like, a, a lot of, like, semi-vulgar jokes and stuff like I would you haven't get, been to admiral before have you? i would get fired <laughs> i'd get fired um not to say that like i don't you know swear like a sailor on my off off times but uh <laughs> but like that, that there isn't you know i think the universal boundary is to treat others how you want to be treated but that is more complicated than it sounds because I think a lot of people don't understand how to lovingly care for themselves. And so we boundaries have to start within ourselves of being able to recognize that we have value and that we have something to give, to provide, to engage with the world around us. um, And that in understanding our own value, we then can recognize the value of others around us. Because I think sometimes too, like I was, I was wanting to say like, can boundaries be like, like caregivers, but I'm like, no, that's a bad example because caregivers are notorious for bad boundaries because they just give and give and give and they never take care of themselves. And like, that is not good because a good boundary, it, it produces healthy community and you are part of that community. So therefore you are part of the healthy system which then brings health to oneself. So if you're getting sucked dry and everybody else is fine and great and like thriving, like there's a problem in the system. And I mean, like I have, I have been the one who was sucked dry. Like I had been the one who like was sort of the say yes to everyone and everything and try to make everybody happy and control everything so that, you know, things would work out the way that I wanted them to work out. And it like almost killed me, like literally almost killed me. Um, and, and it's, it's ironic for me. Like I know that like my boundaries have been disrupted, whether by myself or others, or just like society, like right now with, you know, a pandemic, like I know because my body will make me have a kidney stone. Um, Mm -hmm. it'll pop a kidney stone out. And then I end up in the hospital and I go through this whole thing. Like I've had almost 15 kidney stones. Oh my God. Um, situations, I should say. Um, that's nuanced in another time. But um, sure. but my mind will be telling me, like, everything's fine. Everything's great. Like, you're doing good work. Like, you're functioning. My body's, like, screaming. Literally, like, 10 out of 10 pain screaming at me, like, you need to slow down. You need to say no to things. You need to cut things out of your life. Like, you are not okay. But my brain is like, yeah, fine. We're great. Like, I'm going to take on that project. Like, <laughs> I'm going to be a super mom. Like, I'm going to try and be like, you know, whatever. Um, so it's, it's recognizing that it ha- it, it's a, fl- it, like you said, it's fluid, it's contextual. Um, but it's also common sense. Sure. Sure. And I think this is a good point for us to kind of transition to the pitch for our next episode. So we're going to kind of take this idea of what does it mean to be welcoming? What does it mean to be inclusive? And what does it mean to do that with boundaries? And then how does that relate to 
growing the church into actually connecting people and and what does conversion mean like what what does it mean for people to actually embody in a healthy way the welcome and the inclusivity of the progressive church in a way that isn't just doormat like and what is the conversion that people go through where they can be welcoming people with boundaries is there a conversion experience there and i think we'll both argue yes yeah and also like uh like welcoming to what because we're welcome, but that's nice. Like, do I even want to go there? So that like concept of conversion in the sense of, um, in a classical kind of conservative sense of like, you're converting to Christianity and because you, you know, found Jesus, you're then going to the church so you can live your life for Jesus so that you can ultimately get into heaven, um, or stay in heaven. Um, cause I guess in some regards you can like lose your ticket to heaven. I don't know <laughs> along the way, but but does that translate to the progressive church? Like, what are, what are we selling? <laughs> what are we providing? What are we asking people to convert to? Um, you know, sure. is there ultimately like a boundary there that, that what is the boundary that signifies why one would decide to come into a church and why would one not? Why would they need us? Yeah. Good question. Well, we'll wrestle with it next time. Next time. <laughs> and during this quarantine season, we're going to move to a weekly format so that we can keep you all entertained as you <laughs> self-isolate. <laughs> make sure to subscribe. Um, we are now officially on iTunes, so make sure mm -hmm. to rate us. It helps people find us, share us, like us, get people knowing we're here. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. Absolutely. Enjoy yourselves and stay safe. Keep those hands sanitized. Wash your hands. <laughs>